I ask the Lord that I might grow. I hope that is your theme song, as well as many other good songs that we sing. But that very topic is what we're considering once again today, growth in godliness. More specifically, 10 resolutions for the Christian. You can call them New Year's resolutions, but I make the case that all of them you should be doing all the time, but it's a good time of year to focus on 2018 and how we might excel still more, and maybe some of you implement these resolutions for the very first time. Growing in godliness, growing in Christ-likeness, it is what the Christian life is about. The Christian life is not a, a merely, I'm saved, I can check the box, and now I can take it easy and go on vacation the rest of my life. By the way, even on vacation, you can glorify God, but uh, is not sit back and take it easy. The Christian life is about becoming more and more like Christ until he takes you home to be with him. So there is a purpose to it. Now, all the, the resolutions that I listed last week and, and even today, for the most part, they're commands in Scripture. There's one exception, and I'll give it to you in a moment. It was the last one from last week, but they're all commands in Scripture, things that we should already be doing. And I'm just helping you give some some concrete statements that will let you focus more on that growth this coming year. Uh, Today I'll be mostly talking about uh, how you love the church in 2018. How exactly can you grow in your love for this body or whatever local church you're in if you're just visiting here today. Uh, So as to remind us what motivates us to to keep these resolutions. Is it just Because we have this duty and and we're being legalistic? Not at all. We have gathered together to love one another because God first loved us. To set our minds on that theme before I go through the the remaining resolutions, I want to read to you 1 John uh, 4, 7 through 11. 1 John chapter 4, uh, 7 through 11. And this is our motivation because when I start listing these, you're going to want to create a list of things to do, which is essentially what it is. It is a list of things to do. But you must remember, and I'll remind you the rest of the year as we preach through the Gospel of Luke, that it is God's grace that is the only reason we can do these things. 1 John 4, 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to also to love one another. God, we ask that you would help us with these resolutions as we, as we seek to look at five more this morning that apply to the church. It is out of love, love towards you, God, and love towards one another that we seek to gather and serve and love one another in this body. And so I ask this morning as we consider these five that you will help us to do it by your grace, to live these things out, to make them a part of our lives, and to glorify you as we do them. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, since it is the new year, I wanted to give 10 resolutions. Last week was New Year's Eve, and I, I did part one then, as I said. And they're, they're to help you grow in Christ. And I want you to, to be able to benefit from these, to implement these in your life. You have other resolutions, I hope. Maybe uh, pay off debt, maybe uh, get a raise, or, or be able to save more, or... Uh, spiritual goals outside of the ones I've listed. Maybe you have certain goals to read so many books. Maybe you have certain goals with your children, etc. And those are fine. But I want to help you focus on some spiritual goals last week for your personal life and this week uh, for your church life. The 10 that I've selected are goals that I think will help our church the most right now. I think it'll help our church because of where we're at. And then they're just needed the most in general for Christians, but particularly based on what I've seen with our church in the two years that we have been a church. So last week's resolutions, you might want to know those if you weren't here. You can also listen to them on the website. I encourage you to do that, the whole sermon. But here were the last, uh, last week's five resolutions. By God's grace, in 2018, I will, number one, Read my Bible with the aim of reading it completely in one or two years. The idea here is that you need to know all of God's word if you're a child of God. And it's good to go ahead and make a plan to read through it in a year. I gave two years in case some of you couldn't do it in a year. or Two years is fine. But you want to do this on a regular basis every year or so. Be reading through God's word. And I've spoken to some of you this morning. You've already begun that journey and discovered things that you haven't seen before in Scripture. Number two, have fellowship with God through prayer, regularly and for extended time periods. Praying is an essential part of the Christian life, and you cannot be a Christian unless you want to talk to God and ask Him for things and adore Him and give Him thanks. Prayer is part of the Christian life. It just goes along with who we are. And I hope you set aside specific extended time periods to speak with the Lord. Number three, work, this, uh, work, with, work at killing the sin in my life and fighting it with all my spirit-empowered might. Work at killing the sin in my life and fighting it with all my spirit-empowered might. Sin has no place in the Christian. We still do have indwelling sin, but we ought to be attacking it and strategizing. And if you listened to last week's sermon, I gave some examples of sin patterns that a lot of us still hang on to. And we need to be done with that. We need to get after that sin and be fighting it because it will kill us if we don't kill it. Number four, make a greater effort to evangelize unbelievers to show them the way of salvation. Christ gave a command to the church for us to spread the gospel, to make disciples. And I encouraged you last week to to make a greater effort this year in evangelizing unbelievers. I listed some examples and some ministries even that you might start or be a part of. And then number five, the only one that's not commanded directly in Scripture, but I I gave it as a suggestion. I gave the example of Paul. Read 50% more Christian books than I did last year to aid my growth in holiness. 50% more Christian books than I did last year to aid my growth in holiness. That's not commanded in Scripture. Not everybody could even read when Scripture was written. But I think now with who we are and what we have at our disposal and the fact that it's good to to listen to good teachers and and read them, you should be attempting to read some good Christian books. Now this week, 
we consider five resolutions, as I said, that relate to the church, specifically you as a church member. Now, if you're not a believer, this is not something you can even do. You might hear these things, even the ones that I've already listed. As an unbeliever, you cannot do them. You can try, but the Bible says you're going to be unable to do them Except you can read some Christian books, I guess, this next year. 50% more Christian books. An unbeliever can do that. But if you're an unbeliever, these five things are not how you earn your salvation. They're what you do after you're saved. Living the Christian life is what you do after you're saved. None of these will earn your salvation. The only way to be saved is to trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. To, to turn from your sin and seek the Savior who died on the cross for sinners just like us. But as to the Christian, you can do these things, and I encourage you to do them. Uh, let's continue on with our 10 resolutions for the Christian. Number six. In 2018, I will commit to gathering with my church more regularly. In 2017, I will commit to gathering with my church more regularly. At my house, when the kids have vegetables and something else on their plate, we make them eat what first? The vegetables have to be eaten first before you get any of the other good stuff, and especially the dessert. Well, in my list today, we want to go ahead and deal with the big plate of vegetables in the very beginning of the sermon. In 2018, I will, I will seek to gather more regularly with my church. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Let's have a look at Hebrews 10. If you would turn in your Bible there. We were already in there for scripture reading in Hebrews 9, so just go over one more chapter. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. There is a purpose for gathering regularly as a church. Hebrews 10, 24. He's, he's making the case that these Hebrew believers ought to do the things that he's listing here. He's listing three things in this whole passage. But he gets down here to the last one. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We can all say amen to that. Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. But encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I want you to focus in on that not forsaking our own assembling together. There's a little phrase there that we need to look at first. Not forsaking our own assembling together. To not forsake, or just the word forsake, means to separate connection with someone or something. To abandon, to desert it. So don't abandon your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't uh, forsake them, set them apart, abandon them, desert them. It's the same word in Greek that Jesus used on the cross when he was crying out to the Father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt abandoned because of the sin upon him. God could not relate to him in the same way at that moment. And he cried out to God, Why have you forsaken me? Quoting from the Old Testament. It's a strong word in the Bible. So for the author of Hebrews to pull it out here is this a strong language. Don't forsake our own assembling together. The purpose of Sunday gathering is to worship and praise God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
But also, here's another big reason. What does it say in the beginning of this verse? Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Love and good deeds. Uh, It's in the context of us gathering regularly together that we can do that. How do we love one another and show good deeds and do things for people if we're not around them? Not only is skipping the church meeting bad for your own soul, he's saying, but it's, uh, it's actually bad for others, brothers and sisters of yours in the faith who desperately need you to encourage them. I need you to encourage me every week. You need me to encourage you every week. We all need one another for encouragement and for serving one another. You go through the New Testament, and there's all these one another's, and we like to talk about the one another's. But you have to have somebody else to do the one another's too, right? This is why Christianity by itself, I'm not speaking necessarily today to you, but the people who say they're Christians but aren't part of any church ever, that's not found in the New Testament. How can you love one another? How can you serve one another, bear one another's burdens, weep with one another, rejoice with one another if it's just you or just you and your spouse? The Bible assumes you'll be part of a New Testament church. So what I'm speaking to you mostly today is let's make a greater effort this coming year to be here even more regularly than we were the previous year, if at all possible. The New Testament pattern of church life is that believers come together on the first day of the week. They worship, they serve the Lord, they regularly took the Lord's Supper, and they remembered His sacrificial death. And because of all of that, they're also loving and serving and encouraging one another. It's so important we put it in our members' covenant. A covenant is an agreement that members make with one another here. Based on this verse in Scripture, we, we all say this, we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Now there's forsaking that's just completely leaving the body of Christ. Certainly we don't want to do that. But there's also just not coming around very much, not participating with the body on a Sunday morning as often as you could. In other words, just saying, you know what, I have Jesus, I have my Bible. I think I'll stay home and focus on that today. Well, you can be married and try that with your wife. I'm going to be married to you, hon, but I think I'm not going to come and see you very often. It's not going to work with my wife. It's probably not going to work with your spouse. You, when you join a church, and I'm speaking to members here, you, you are, in a sense, making a covenant, an agreement. It's not the same as marriage, but it is in that likeness. We're part of the body of Christ. If you look at Ephesians 5, uh, the scripture makes that point. And we ought to be around the body of Christ, loving and serving and doing the things that I mention. So let's look briefly at what keeps people from doing this, what keeps people from attending church. Now there sometimes is a valid reason. I think it doesn't say this in Scripture, but I think there are valid reasons like health reasons when you're sick, when your children are sick, when you're not able. As you get older, you're not even able to get out of bed either by sickness or some infirmity. Sometimes you're on vacation. 
And I think that's fine. You can go on vacation. Uh, if you can find a good church to worship in when you're on vacation, that's even better. That's what we try to do when we go on vacation. It doesn't always happen. There's a lot of bad churches in these places that sometimes we go to, but look for a good church. So, but, you know, if you're vacationing every Sunday of the year, that's probably making an excuse not to be a part of the body. Sometimes work will take you away, and, and this is kind of, sometimes it's, it's probably valid, and other times we can choose what we do for work. I mean, this is a free country. In the New Testament times, there were slaves that could not go and meet with the other Christians. Their master would prevent them from doing it, and they still wanted to be there. And they might, you know, I'm just speculating, but they might make a reason to go to the market so that they could find some other Christians on that Sunday to encourage them. But you know, when they were allowed to go as slaves, you know what they did? They went because that was their only opportunity to be around other believers. So there are valid reasons, but I think sometimes we let excuses get in the way. We feel like we've sinned too much this week or today and we don't want to be around other Christians. I would say to you, that's an even better reason to come. Hear the word of God. Encourage you, I hope. Let other believers encourage you. Moms, you get worn out all week with these little ones. You need the church. You need another mom to encourage you in Christ. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're a mom of of many children, young children, babies. Maybe you stayed up too late. Maybe the kids kept you up all night. Maybe you have visitors in town. Come to church with us or we'll see you when we get back from church. I remember when I was a brand new believer and I had some very close family come and visit. And I'd never taken anybody to church because I just got saved. We'd only been going for a few weeks. And here's these family members staying with us. What do we do? I've never invited anyone to church. And so we just said, you know what? We're going to go and they can go with us. That's up to them. And we invited them and they said, we'd love to go to that church. We'd love to come and see what you guys do on Sunday. And they came with us. And I hope the Lord used that to either save them eventually, they're not saved yet, or to um, do his own purposes in their heart. Sometimes people say, I'm not in a good mood today. I don't feel like it. Again, this comes back to just preparing the night before, preparing that morning. None of us wake up perfectly ready to do everything God's called us to do. It's not possible that you're going to wake up every Sunday morning, you're going to feel 100% Satan's never going to have tempted you. There's no fights at your house in the morning. The kids didn't cause any problems. We have that every Sunday morning. There's always some big, huge thing happening with a kid that could make us late or, you know, not show up if I was allowed to do that. But I'm not, so. You're part of the body of Christ. Each member of Christ's body has been given different gifts to serve. We need you here. We just do. I'm not being legalistic. It's in the Bible. Whenever God says it, that's not legalistic. I'm not saying you have to be here 100% of the time. And sometimes service jobs, you know, will call us away depending on what kind of service that we're in. There are certain jobs that occasionally call us to work on a Sunday. I'm not saying you have to practice the Old Testament Sabbath where you could never do anything on Sunday. But this command says don't forsake it. Don't just uh, make excuses or decide you're not going to go for a reason that would not be honoring to God. There are some valid reasons. And let's keep those as short as we possibly can. Why come to church regularly? Because it encourages one another. You have accountability. 
You can be admonished for your sin by either the sermon or other believers. You can pray with the body. You can take in the word being preached. I mean, this is something that Christians throughout church history have really held up high, that the word gets publicly proclaimed and they can take it in. And it has a different effect on you than if you just read it for yourself. And also serve with your gifting. The Bible describes the church being like a body with its different parts. And imagine if my hand didn't show up today or if my head didn't show up today. That would not be good for me. It would not work well. So the body's needed. And if some of us can't make it to church, then, then let's help those who can't make it and let's go and serve them when they're at home unable to come. So number six, I will uh, make an attempt to be here more regularly. And I'm just talking about Sunday morning. There are other things in the church life that you could also be a part of, but let's, let's prioritize the worship service, worshiping together. Number seven, I will pray for my elders. Pray for their holiness, their teaching and preaching, and how they oversee the church. So we got the vegetables out of the way. Now we're on to some more meat and potatoes here. When, when Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he's begging them for prayer. He simply says, near the end of his letter, brethren, pray for us. That's all that needed to be said by him. Just, please just pray for us. He always is asking for prayers. The author of Hebrews, by the way, I think that's probably Paul, but just in case you don't agree with me, I say the author of Hebrews, writes at the end of his letter, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience designed to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. Pray for our holiness as leaders, he's saying. Pray for us to grow in godliness. I love the, the story by or about Charles Spurgeon in his church, if you visited often, a, like a group of college students would come in, he might take them on a tour. And he would say, do you want to see the, the boiler room? Not really, you know, it's the middle of the summer. We don't need to see the boiler room. But he would take them downstairs to the basement, and he would open up a door, and he would say, this is the boiler room. This is the room that really gives energy and heat to the church. And when they peered in, there would be hundreds, sometimes 500, 700 people downstairs praying for the service that was about to start. And he said, this is the powerhouse of the church. This is the boiler room that gives life to the church through prayer. Even later in his life, after decades of pastoring, one of the largest churches in the world, probably was the largest church in the world at that time, Spurgeon was asked to account for his great success in ministry. Without hesitation, he responded, my people pray for me. Of all the things that God had given him, he said the prayers of his people were the most important to him. So I ask you to pray for me, pray for Joey, pray for future leaders, pray for those who lead the church. Here are some things you can pray for this coming year, and I hope every year after this. Pray for your elders' growth and holiness. More than anyone in the church, the church leaders must practice what they preach. It's not good for me to get up here and preach one thing and then live a different way. That would be inconsistent. And the Bible says that we must be examples to the flock. Pray that we might grow to be more like Christ every day this year. None of us have arrived, and certainly church leaders haven't arrived in heaven yet. We need your prayer so that we can continue to grow. Pray for our spiritual protection from the world, the flesh, and the devil. You know, just, just focusing on 
the devil for a moment, Satan wants to tear down Christ's church. Can we agree on that? He loves to tear down true churches. One by one, and he's doing that around the world. The quickest way to do that is through attacking the leaders. Because if the leaders in a church fall, what happens usually to the church? It falls. Now, it might move somewhere else, reconstitute or whatever. But often the the current church falls. Pray for our deliverance as church leaders from physical attacks of the world and the devil. In Philippians, Paul says that he was confident of his imprisonment that it will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He thought that the Spirit would release him from prison, a physical, real Roman imprisonment, and it would work through their prayers. The Philippians would pray for Paul, and that would be part of God's plan to release him. I remember going to seminary hearing about how much the devil would challenge me and challenge others there. And I've never seen such a place of both growth in godliness for everyone and sickness that inflicted certain families. I mean, there was guys in their 30s in the hospital for weeks. Just unexplained things that would affect whole families for months. Kids suddenly getting certain diagnoses. And so much it seemed like Satan physically trying to prevent these men and their families from being there. Physical attacks do come from Satan. And so we need prayer to resist those. Pray for our hearts to love the flock. Shepherds sometimes get bitten by the sheep. Shepherds sometimes get knocked down. There's, there's a video online of a shepherd in Ireland who just gets run over by a ram, constantly knocking this man or woman, I can't tell who it is, over and over down in the middle of the highway. And then the shepherd just gets up and follows the sheep on. And so pray for us to, to have a better love and, and more love for the flock. Not everyone is like that, of course, but... We just need to be able to handle the load. Pray that hearts will be softened for the reception of the gospel as we teach and preach in the church. Hard hearts show up here almost every Sunday morning. Sometimes believers that have been hardened, but often unbelievers who are just hardened to the gospel and they come because they're invited or they're visiting. Pray that these will be softened and that our work will have a great effect in their hearts through the gospel. Pray that they might Uh, leaders might have boldness and power to preach the gospel and teach the gospel. If Paul needed prayer, I think we need prayer. Ephesians 6, 19, he said that he needed prayer. He said that he wanted them to pray for his boldness in preaching. And he was a pretty bold preacher already. One 19th century pastor said, it is a fearful expense that ministers are ever allowed to enter the pulpit without being preceded, accompanied, and followed by the earnest prayers of the churches. Pray before I preach, pray during my sermon, pray after my sermon for me and for God's word to do its effect. Pray that the leaders might have a spirit of wisdom and understanding. There must be biblical wisdom when it comes to counseling matters, knowing when to confront a member, Wisdom on how to mediate things. Wisdom and discernment on a particular pastoral need for the congregation. Pray for our wisdom. And then lastly, I'll just mention pray for our marriages and our families. That's one of the qualifications. You can't even be an elder unless you're a man of one wife and you manage your household, your children well. And pray that it will continue to be like that. 
Now that's in God's hands. We can do our best to raise up our kids, but it's ultimately in God's hands. And so pray for us that we can continue to strive for even greater godliness and holiness in our families. The third today, it'll be the eighth total resolution, is I will seek to make new meaningful friends in the church. I will seek to make new meaningful friends in the church. I think you'll, most of you will like this one. Um, they should all challenge us, by the way, but there's probably a few today that you need to work more on than others. We need to have godly friendships in the church. The church should be a place where some of your best friends are. If, if all of your good friends are outside the church and you have no friends inside the church, then there's a problem there. And this is not just for women who often will want this more than us men, but it's for you guys too. You know, often as guys, we think, oh, we're fine. We don't need any good and godly friends, right? We'll just do it ourselves. But you do. You do need godly friends. The Bible talks about that over and over. Again, looking to our members' covenant, we ask all new members to to agree to this. We will rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, and strive with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. How do we do that? By getting to know one another, by, by hopefully becoming friends with our brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, there's a lot in the Bible about friendship. I'll just list a few verses uh, Proverbs says that there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 18.24. In Deuteronomy, it's, it's listing these laws. And just kind of in passing, God through Moses says something about your friend who is as your own soul. Your friend in, in the Hebrew culture was just like your own self. Just connected with you. Just like your own soul was. And First Samuel 18.1 The soul of Jonathan, you probably know this verse, was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. That's a very close-knit, intimate friendship there. And and 3 John, he closes it out with just saying, the friends greet you, greet the friends by name. So he's assuming that they're all friends, and that they're friends with each other amongst churches. Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Also, the Bible will depict friendship as a face-to-face relationship, a very close encounter. I mean, if you're face-to-face with somebody, you're really close with them. This is Moses and God, Exodus 30 through 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face-to-face, just as a man speaks to his friend. In the Bible, there's this idea that friends are, are very close. They're, they're almost face-to-face when they, when they speak to one another, when they relate to one another. There's a, a theologian who's written a couple of books on biblical friendships, and he has this to say about face-to-face image that's in the, in the Bible. The face-to-face image implies a conversation, a sharing of confidences, and consequently a meeting of minds, goals, and direction. One of the benefits of such face-to-face encounters between friends is the heightened insight that such times of friendship produce. If you're going to get to know your brothers and sisters in Christ, you've got to spend time face-to-face with them. I know we live in a day of Facebook friends and and, and Twitter tweets and texts and even phone calls, but we've got to spend time together with one another. 
Now, first, before we go any further, let's address some, some legalistic issues about this, some misconceptions even about friendships in the church. Sometimes, instead of actively seeking friends, we can be a little bit legalistic and complain that no one else is trying to be our friend. We can be legalistic and complain that other church members are not living up to my standard of friendship. I have no friends in the church, sometimes a person might say, because no one is serving me, or I've given my all, but no one's giving back. I actually had someone once, a long time ago, tell me they were done with the church because they served as hard as they could for six months, and no one seemed to ever give back. And so they were done. They were no longer going to go to church. God has a call for each one of us to be proactive in friendships. You have to be proactive. God gave you your family. You didn't really have a choice. He just gave you who your family is made up of. But we do have a choice when it comes to friends. And we ought to actively seek them out within the church. Get to know them. Pray with them. Serve them. He's not called us to to go around telling others how they can be the best friend to me. But let's serve others and make friends through that process. Other times, uh, members don't have friendships because they're just not involved enough in church. You can't expect a friend just to show up at your doorstep from the church. Now, that might happen. Sometimes I might show up at your doorstep and and, want to talk to you and and pray with you. But if if you come in a couple of minutes you know, after the service starts and then leave right away, there's no time to fellowship. There's no time to get to know one another. And so I would encourage you not to, to fall into that misconception that no one wants to be your friend when simply being around more and staying after and coming before. Some people say no one's in my life stage here. I think this is common for a lot of us at some point in churches, especially if you've ever been part of a really big church, right? There is a life stage group for like every, you've got you know, all the way up through the, the kids, every couple of years hang out together. And then you've got the adult classes and they often span like every five years, there's a class, a Sunday school class. And then you've got, you know, addicts class and divorce class and marriage and people who go to Six Flags classes. And, you know, you, you know it's good to have some of those groups, but sometimes you can come to a smaller church and think, well, no one in my life stage here. I, I, can't, I can't make friends. God's put you here providentially, sovereignly put you here for a purpose. So you you can make friends. And God didn't say love one another when they're the same age as you or have the same kids as you or the same number of kids. I mean, we're in big trouble if we're having to look for somebody that's got exactly the same pattern and looks exactly like us. I once had a person tell me that they didn't like the church they were going to because it was all made up of young people. There were no gray hairs in the church. And so they were going to leave. And I said, well, it's a good thing not everybody thinks like that because there'll never be gray hairs in the church if everyone thought like that. I mean, if you're the only one in your life stage, then you just started a new ministry at Grace Bible Church. Essentially, you're the first one. So make a difference and show other people in the church that A person in that life stage can be just as godly as someone in any life stage. We all want friends that are exactly like us, but that's not what God wants. He wants us to mix things up. He wants us to get to know people that aren't like us so that we can love on them and serve them and learn from them. So I encourage you to do that. These are wrong ways to think of uh, church friendships, but 
And the New Testament, again, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. If you don't really know anyone in the church, how can you rejoice over what they're rejoicing? How can you weep with them over what they're weeping over if you don't know them well enough to know? So I encourage you to be closer friends. Choose, choose one or two people this year that you will really try to get to know. And if that doesn't work out, then choose someone else. Maybe you'll set a goal to have somebody over to your house for dinner or meet them for lunch or coffee once a month. Have a family over once a month, a different family to your house if you're able. Be hospitable and have people for dinner and get to know them. You'll make friends. Take a meal to someone who needs it. Talk with them about what's going on in their life. Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. The Christian life, again, is not meant to be lived alone. And you can even be part of a church regularly on Sunday and not have close relationships. And it's not everyone else's fault. It's your job to make an effort. All right, number nine, fourth one today, ninth overall resolution that I hope you'll put down for this year. In 2018, I will seek unity in the church. Even if it means I must sacrifice my wants and desires. God loves unity in the church. Christ expects unity in his body. Church unity is essential. Without it, the church is just like any other worldly organization. We have petty fighting, backstabbing, self-seeking interest. Everybody's looking out for themselves. The thing often falls apart. Again, that's why we ask new members to, to agree. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Where do we get that? In Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3. Look at Ephesians 4. A sermon like this, I'm not seeking to exposit every passage we look at. If you return next week, we'll do that with the Gospel of Luke. But this is a a special sermon where we just briefly look at various verses, selected verses. Ephesians 4 talks about this unity that ought to be present in the church. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. So how are we supposed to walk? How are we supposed to live in a worthy manner that matches up with the fact that God has called us and redeemed us and saved us? He gives a list. Gentle, humble, patient, showing tolerance in love, being diligent, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Diligent. He's imploring us to be diligent. This takes work. You can't just expect the church to be unified and not participate in that unity. It it takes work to do. Be diligent about it. Don't let yourself uh, slip up on it. Now he goes through and he talks about some doctrinal unity. One body, one spirit. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. I mean, we serve the same God and the same Christ. Can't we, first of all, be unified doctrinally around the basics of the faith? That's why we have a a basic statement of faith that we ask all members to agree to. 
But he's also expecting unity in other areas of the church, not just doctrinally, although that's extremely important, but unified with the leadership, unified with the whole body, unified in loving and serving one another. I hope in in 2018 that you'll be unified with your church and resolve to stick with your church, to remain a member. I mean, it sounds simple, doesn't it? Of course, I'm going to remain a member. I'm going to be resolved to, to commit to unity in the church. But our culture is not so easy to do that these days. I mean, we live in a church hopping, church shopping culture. And if you don't like the color of that chair right there, then you, some people decide to go on to the next place and find the chair color they do like. And I know that sounds silly, but you would be surprised at some of the things I've heard as to why people choose the churches they do. Many Christians give very little thought to church unity and how their complaints or their desire to, to, to seek another church can disrupt that unity. There are Good and bad reasons to leave a church. A good reason to leave a church is they're not preaching the gospel. They're not preaching the word. They're preaching heresy. You should get out of there as fast as you can after you've tried to tell the leaders that that's heresy. But if they are preaching truth, and if they are doing what the Bible has commanded, then it doesn't really matter if we don't like every single thing in the church. We don't like the color of Pete's slides. We still got to stay and worship together. I like the color of Pete's slides, but, you know, everybody has opinions. The church is not about opinions. It's about following the Lord. And the Reformers taught that a Christian was not on biblical grounds when leaving a church if the word was being preached rightly, if the ordinances were being observed rightly, and church discipline was practiced. If those three essentials are in place, the word being teach rightly would include right doctrine. If those three things are in place, then it, you might leave based on a preference, music style, etc. But you really have to give consideration as to, is that honoring God? And you can disrupt unity with staying in a church. It's not just leaving, but sometimes we wonder about certain people and why they've left. And it's good to address this at this point. Another way to seek unity is to kill the sin of pride when you don't get your way. I don't get my way. We have an elders meeting once a month, and I might suggest something, and you know what? Joey might say, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And we want to be unified on major decisions in the church. And as we add more elders, Lord willing, it gets harder to be unified, but we feel like that the Spirit is working through all of us to make wise choices on major issues in the church. You're probably not always going to get your way as a member. Either dealing individually with another member. You might not like what they do or how they treat you. Or with the leadership of a church. But seek unity. Seek unity. We all mess up. We all sin, don't we? Still as believers. Your leaders will sometimes sin, believe it or not. We do. Ask my family. I do sin. And I ask that you have grace. Don't be legalistic, but have grace. How many times did the disciples mess up or actually sin in the presence of Christ? And did he say, you know what? I'm going to find 12 more disciples. I'm leaving you guys. I mean, Judas betrayed him and he knew Judas was going to betray him. And he still let Judas hang around. But let's just focus on the 11 believing disciples. 
He didn't cast him off. I mean, Peter, he called Peter Satan, Jesus did. And it basically said, Satan is making you say this. Get behind me, Satan. And Peter remained a disciple. So if Jesus could have that kind of grace and, and forgiveness, I think we can do that with our brothers and sisters and leaders in the church. Now, disunity is, is very much frowned upon and hated even by God. We're never going to get our way 100% of the time. That's just life in general, but even as a Christian. Hopefully you can thank God that you don't always get your way. And you can rejoice if the gospel's preached, if the doctrine is pure, if worship is biblical, and the Bible's lived out. That means obviously we have believers making up our membership as best we know. Another reason, last reason I'll give you to seek unity is because you fear God. As I mentioned, God hates disunity. He's commanded us out of his grace to seek this unity. It's what's best for us. It's what's best for us, and he wants us to do that. But he's also put some warnings in the Bible. Proverbs 6 says that God hates those who spread strife among brothers. Paul warns of such disunity when he says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn. Turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. There will be, again, as there already has been, there will be someone who comes. They might even become a member of the church that will seek to disrupt the church or seek to spread false teaching that's, that's clearly not biblical. And you have to seek to be unified and, and stay with the truth and stay with Christ's body and admonish those who do such things and tell the leadership if you hear heresy, especially being taught ever publicly. So let us resolve to be unified actively and work to keep that unity throughout 2018 and until the Lord returns. Last one, and it's not a, a small one, it's a large one connected to what I just said. We really didn't get to the dessert of the meal if we go with that analogy. We started with vegetables, moved to the meat and potatoes. I don't even know what you might call this. This is the Brussels sprouts. I will not gossip or slander my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, nor my church leaders. This deserves its own sermon. It's such an important aspect in the Bible. I, I, Lord willing, we'll get to a whole sermon on it someday. But for now, since we're doing 10 resolutions, this rounds us out with the last one. What is gossip? The resolution again is, I will not gossip or slander my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, nor my church leaders, which are also fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Gossip is speaking about someone in a way that defames or dishonors or otherwise hurts their character. You may not even know that it's true. You just pass along tidbits of information. Many of you have heard things like this about your friends, about churches, about work, uh, people that you work with. And, and they don't even know if it's true. You don't know if it's true. You don't think it's gossip when you hear it, but, but it is. It, it defames, dishonors, otherwise hurts their character. Just talking negatively about people who were not there or saying that you heard something and it doesn't cast that person in a very good light. Slander is the twin sister of gossip. It takes it up a, a notch, a step. A slander is making a false spoken statement, damaging to a person's reputation. 
There's really a fine line between these two, right? I mean, slander is making a false spoken statement, and, and gossip's just saying something that dis, dis, uh, disfames, dishonors, or otherwise hurts them. Very fine line. I think slander has more to do with you know what you're saying is not true. Whereas gossip, you may or may not even know it. We have to be careful with this. I mean, Satan loves gossip and slander. Do you know what the word Satan means? Do you know what the name Satan means? The accuser, the slanderer. In Hebrew, that's what it means. He is the slanderer. He's always before God, slandering God's people. That is what the word Satan means. He's the accuser. And we're called not to be like that. So not only, I said we ought, to not, we ought to be careful with it, but we ought to just flee from it. Be careful not to listen to it. The Bible takes this seriously the New Testament. Ephesians 4.29, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. When we gather as Christians, or when you meet in homes, or when you have a small group, or when you have a lunch at a restaurant, that's a time for encouragement. That's a time for edification, building up. And the minute that complaints come out, you've got to stop that in your own heart and mind. If it's you, or if you're hearing it, the Bible expects that you don't even let that come out of your mouth. And we've got to fight that sin as a church, as individuals. Uh, James 4.11, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. You're not even doing what God expects us to do, the laws that he's given us to obey as Christians. If you're putting yourself up as a judge above somebody and speaking against them. Again in James, see this is why you need to sign up for the James Bible studies. A lot in James. James one twenty six. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. In other words, that's a mark of an unbeliever. Somebody who just never bridles their tongue and they're always saying things that don't build up and they're saying gossips and they're saying slanders. That's a mark of an unbeliever. The slander is mentioned in Romans one twenty nine as someone whom God has given over to a depraved mind. So in Romans 1, he gives all these depravities. And near the end there, he mentions a long list. One of them is a slanderer. While all believers are called to flee from these sins, though, women in the church are especially admonished by the Apostle Paul when it comes to gossip and slander. All believers are told not to slander, not to gossip. But then in the pastoral epistles, Paul specifies certain groups of women that he calls not to do this as well. Uh, When speaking of widows, he says their widow can't even put on, on the support list if they've been slanders or malicious gossips in the past. An older woman who's been widowed is not to be supported by the church financially, he says, if they're known to have been a slander or gossip. 1 Timothy 3, talking about deacons, he says that a deacon's wife must be, uh, women must be likewise dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. And then Titus 2, 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior. That means holy, 
not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. So the opposite of being godly is a drunkard and a gossip. We're to teach what is good. And, and ladies, you probably will hear much more gossip and much more slander than most of us men will. That doesn't mean that we're immune to it. We'll, we'll certainly still hear it and some of us will struggle with that sin. But I think especially the Bible admonishes women to be careful. Watch out for this sin. God hates gossip. There are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, even seven which are an abomination to him. He lists seven things in Proverbs 6. Two of them. A lying tongue and a false witness who utters lies. Not only should we not be gossips and slanders, but God takes it a step further and he says you shouldn't even listen to it. He says stay away from it. Again, Proverbs twenty nine nineteen. He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. Do not even associate with them. Don't be friends with them. We're talking about friendships. You may have to cut a friendship if there is gossip and slander occurring every time. Now, you should admonish this person if they're a believer. Uh, you should call them not to do that. But if it continues, you may have to cut that relationship off. Proverbs 17:4: An evildoer listens to wicked lips. A liar pays attention to a destructive tongue. Misery loves company, and, and when we're down and out, we can just love to hear the complaints of others. When we're not feeling well about something, other people can inflame that with their gossip and with their slander. And so God wants what's best for us, and he tells us to stay away from that. Not associate with such people. Don't let it come out of your own mouth. We are able to do that. With the Holy Spirit's power in us as believers, we can do all of these things that have been listed today. And I hope that you, that you will do that as part of this church. We want to grow in godliness. And some of these things sound somewhat negative, but they're not. I mean, they're commands by God. There are things that he's telling us to do for our own good and for the church's good and for his glory. And so I hope that you'll, you'll take the five today and the five last week and that you'll seek to put them into practice on a regular basis in your life. I can't tell you specifically how to live each one out. I've given you suggestions. I've given you some things to think about. And I hope that you will use them to grow in godliness this next year. I'm excited about what's happening in our church right now. I'm excited about what will happen in our church as we begin to grow even more in godliness. I mean, the Lord is really blessing our church beyond, I think, what we even imagined when we first planted the church. We had a, a visitor just real quick last week that's going to uh, another seminary, Southern Seminary, and he said, how long have you guys been here? And I said, just two years. Our birthday's coming up in a few weeks. And he was shocked because he'd been visiting many churches in seminary, looking around, learning. And he was just surprised at what God has already done here, sitting through our service and enjoying what he's hearing from you guys. So I'm excited at what the Lord's doing, and I hope that you will continue to pray and continue to work on godliness. Lord, we come to you and ask for your ability to do this. We cannot accomplish these things always on our own. We often fail time and time again, but you can show us grace. You can give us the power to grow and be more like Christ. Christ was was all of the good things I've mentioned and, and none of the sinful things that I've mentioned today. And we want to be more like him as a church. We want to
not only worship him, but live like he lived. So we pray that you will uh, grant that to us. In Jesus' name, amen.